So last week I commented on the uh, trap door that was open behind me that kind of kept me in line for the whole sermon. Well, they filled it in now, so I may just, you know, travel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning because you are God. And you are our good Father. And you've given us your word, and, um, and we value your word. It is your communication to us of what you uh, want to communicate about yourself, about how to know you, about who we are. And so this morning, we, uh, we come and we quiet our hearts before you and uh, to pay attention to your word, to hear what you have from us. And so I pray that you would help us do that. I pray that you would help us to uh, to focus in and not be distracted. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in our hearts, that we would be attentive, that we would uh, be sensitive to what your Spirit has for us, that we would be responsive and obedient. Father, we, um, we're going to talk today about how often we uh, place ourselves higher than we ought. And so I pray, Lord, that you would uh, communicate clearly to us from your word. Help me as, uh, as I proclaim and help us all to be obedient to your word. I pray that you'd work by your spirit. pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open, me, uh, open with me, if you would, to uh, James chapter 4. And we are continuing on through the book of James. You can see we're getting near the end. And we've been working on this for a couple of months now. And um, while you're turning there, I got permission from my children, well, rather, I told my children I was going to do this. <laughs> I didn't really wait for the permission thing, you know. <laughs> but um, I have a, a particular child who shall remain nameless, who likes to steal my spot at the table. And uh, there, are, there are various meals just because of our schedules. We don't get to eat together. Uh, but breakfast is the most common one. And if I happen to be at the breakfast table, if I happen to show up after this child shows up, my seat will be taken. And, uh, and so, um, doesn't bother me at all, but, uh, it, it bothers, it bothers his sisters. And, um, <laughs> they don't like it when he usurps my position. <laughs> so, I didn't name him, you know. I don't know why you guys are even laughing. But apparently there's something significant about being in dad's seat. And, uh, and, and the sisters, particularly one sister that will remain nameless, she, she identifies that big time. And uh, the title of our message today is Taking God's Seat. And that's kind of the idea that we have in mind here. Taking God's seat is something very significant. And uh, it's, it's worth paying attention to and it's worth seeing when it happens. And we're going to see a couple of ways... Uh, even today in our passage where it really does happen that we take his seat. And so um, I kind of want to back up again. And, and uh, I did this last week where I kind of gave a running start to what we were doing. But there's there's special significance, I think, this week to doing that because I kind of wondered uh, how this passage all fit together and what was going on there, how it related to the rest of the book. And so I wrestled with that and, and uh, I, I came to the conclusion that that what we see happening in back in the end of chapter 13, verses 13 through the end of that, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 13, through the end of that chapter, we see James here presenting two different kinds of wisdom. Uh, 
and the trajectories that they're going to go. He talks about a worldly wisdom or a wisdom that's from below, and it has certain characteristics and has certain end results. And then there's a wisdom from God or a wisdom from above that uh, has certain characteristics and results in certain kinds of things. And, and I think we see this being developed all through our passage here and kind of coming to a point in a particular way in, in our passage uh, that we're looking at today in verses 11 through the end of the chapter of chapter 4. And so uh, he, he pointed out in that uh, 13 through 18 these two different kinds of wisdom. And again, I said earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. And earthly wisdom has particular characteristics that go along with it. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition particularly. And those are, those are characteristic of worldly wisdom, of worldly thought patterns of, of that kind of worldview. And, and so uh, that's kind of the characteristic that goes along with it. And, and he argues there in that, in chapter 3, 13 through 18, he argues that those things result in disorder and every vile practice. And so that's, that's the result. That's the direction. That's what's going to happen because of starting from a place of earthly wisdom. And so this, the next few paragraphs are kind of tracing that out and showing us what that's going to look like in various ways. Well, likewise, godly wisdom. He introduces the idea of godly wisdom in that paragraph and he says the characteristics of it as opposed to the earthly wisdom, which was bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, the characteristics of uh, godly wisdom are meekness. And purity. Godly wisdom is peaceable. It's gentle and open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and it's sincere. And you see that kind of difference. It's a big difference between an earthly wisdom and a godly wisdom. And that's just the characteristics. The final product, whereas the final product of the earthly wisdom was disorder and vile practices, the final product for godly wisdom is righteousness and good conduct. And so he kind of lays that out in that paragraph kind of in theory. And he sort of explains it to you and gives you some examples and, and tells you that stuff. Well, then he starts talking about various different aspects of life and what those results look like or what those different two different types of wisdom look like in different aspects. And so he moves on in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and he says, Worldly wisdom produces conflicts with one another. It's evidence of spiritual adultery. It's evidence of unfaithfully going after passions, what he calls in their friendship with the world, and stirring up God's jealousy because we should be going after God with those passions. And instead we, we go after things of this world with that, with that passion. And so it stirs up his jealousy. It's, it's spiritual adultery. That's uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, that next paragraph, heavenly wisdom says to stop exalting ourselves, but rather to humble ourselves before God and let God do the exalting. And that brings us to this section. And this section is going to continue that contrast of worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom as they relate to how we speak, to our speech. Back in chapter 1, verse 26, James said, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious religion is worthless. And so our passage today kind of expands on that theme with a couple of different concepts, a couple of different areas. And so that brings us to our passage today, chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time right here. Let me read this to us. Starting in chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. May God bless the reading of his word. We talked about the idea of stealing God's seat. And this first portion here talks about us being in the judgment seat. We place ourselves in the judgment seat when we, when we sit in, ju- in judgment over another believer. He says there in verses 11 and 12, Do not speak evil against another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are a, not a doer of the law, but a judge. All right, so we sit in judgment over other believers when we speak evil against them, as he says here, or when we judge so this, this idea of how we speak and how we talk, I think, is the unifying factor between these, these two paragraphs and how they fit together. Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he said, Judge not that you be not judged. We're familiar with that, right? That, that actually may be in competition with John 3.16 for the most famous Bible verse because we really like to say it to each other so that, you know, we'll be left alone. <laughs> judge not, all right? Don't judge me. And so, uh, and so I, I want to look at this, this concept of judgment and look at kind of a, do a real quick biblical theology uh, or New Testament theology of the concept of judgment and when we should judge, when we should not judge, what it means to judge, what it does not mean to judge. And so if you will uh, um, think back to, you can flip back to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to go through it quickly. But Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, he talks in there. That's where that, that phrase is or that sentence where he says, judge not that you be not judged. All right, so Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read that to us, and we're going to look at judging from that portion there. Judge not that you be not judged. 4, verse 2, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye you hypocrite first take a log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye and so what he's talking about there is the hypocrisy of me having a log in my eye meaning a large area of sin like this big deal of sin in my life and yet i ignore that and I go after you and this little tiny, tiny little thing that I think you need to correct, right? This area, this little area of sin that you have in your life that he compares to a speck versus the log in my eye, right? He says, that's hypocrisy. But it's interesting how he concludes it. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye and then do what? And then you can see to deal with your brother's sin, then you can see to take the speck 
out of your brother's eye. So he's not saying avoid all kinds of judgment. He's saying there's a very hypocritical way to judge <laughs> when you've got this log hanging off your face and, and you're whacking your buddy over the head with it because you're trying to get to the little speck in his eye. First deal with the log in your own eye. That's, that's the real issue. And then later on you can move on. Paul says uh, some even more provocative things about judging one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you'll flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. By the way, if you're using, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. And uh, you can use that. You can take that. If you don't have a Bible at home, that is yours. And if you will turn in it to page 954, that will get you where you're going. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's talking about sexual immorality in the church and what sexual immorality does in the church. And uh, he makes some very interesting comments um, about that. He, he says in there, uh, do not associate with the sexually immoral or greedy. Right? So uh, look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter. So some letter that was written before 1 Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, stop right there. All right, so he, he wrote and said, don't, don't associate with the sexually immoral, and he's going to go on and add other sins to that of people that we should not spend time with. And he said in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He says, I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm not saying cut off all contact with the sexually immoral of this world. You would be cutting off contact with the whole world. Right. He, he's he's not saying stay away from those type of people. That, that's, those aren't the people I was talking about. But now I'm writing to you not to associate verse 11 with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Right. So he, he says some interesting things about judging there that that actually we are to, to keep an eye on the purity of the church for what do i have to do with judging outsiders verse 12 is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you and so it's a it you're not going to hear this passage referred to matthew 7 1 is much more popular than this passage and what he's talking about there is that we as a church or any church grows weaker as we allow those who call themselves Christians to live in an unchristian way. He says you need to deal with that person. He calls it a form of judgment that you actually should judge. It's not us sitting in here judging the outside world. I work with this person who's such a... right. It's not us sitting here judging the outside world. It's us sitting here together sitting to, seeking the lord together to walk in a more pure way to follow after him and if i have an area of my life that doesn't line up with christian teaching and i say i'm a christian and you're a christian you need to address that we as a church need to address that that we as a congregation will grow weaker and weaker as we allow sins like this to continue in our midst without being addressed he says, purge, purge the evil person from among you. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. And so that's difficult. We don't like that. Right? We don't like to address one another's sins in that kind of way. But that's what, that's what Paul says to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so that probably challenges what you've thought about judge not lest you be judged. Because in some sense, we are to deal with the sins of one another. 
which even lines up with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 5. And so we come back to James, come back to James chapter 4. He says, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. And so he's talking about a particular kind of judging here that we are not supposed to do. And so I want to kind of parse that out a little bit. First of all, the the kind of judging that he forbids in James chapter 4 involves uh, us showing partiality. You remember back in chapter 2 and verse 9, we, we talked about partiality, the sin of partiality with one another. And that means, that means uh, treating one particular person a certain way because they are of a particular class or a particular group or something like that. And you give them preference because of the group they belong to over another person. And you, you, you kind of look away from this person or mistreat this person because of the group they belong to. Right, So you're showing partiality, not dealing with them as individuals, but them according to their, their group. Right, That would be like racism would fit into that. Right, Sexism would fit into that. So that, that kind of stuff, showing partiality, this is avoid that kind of stuff. That was a whole paragraph back in chapter 2 on that topic. He says also this kind of judging that we're to avoid includes speech that is unfair, unwarranted, or unduly harsh criticism against another Christian. Look what he says there. Do not speak evil against one another, the one who speaks against a brother, etc. Right? It's to speak against them. It's to attack them. It's to go to go after them in a critical way. Peter uses the word twice, by the way, in First Peter to refer to unbelievers who were doing good things. Excuse me, the Christians who were doing good things and unbelievers were attacking them for those very good things and speaking against them for the fact that they, whatever, they were doing these right things, these righteous things in following God. And they were being spoken of against. So it's that kind of attacking, that kind of criticism that's unwarranted. It also includes speech that shows a lack of personal humility before God. The the sermon we talked about last week talked about humbling ourselves. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Right. So the kind of speech that, that would exalt me over you. That's the kind of speech and judging that he is uh, that he is forbidding here. This idea of, of judging is, uh, is a difficult one and it's a sensitive one because it would be, uh, we, we have a tendency to judge one another, right? We also have this, uh, we, don't, we, we, we know we shouldn't in some ways and, and we've been told judge not lest you be judged and so we try to avoid it. Um, but a lot of times behind people's back, boy, don't we judge them? It's easy to do, you know, and, and we, it's usually in the form of a prayer request. Or something like that. You know, pray for dear so-and-so. Bless his heart. You know, <laughs> it's not a good thing and we're not actually pray, praying to bless his heart. We want to talk bad about the guy, right? And so often we do it, uh, we do it behind people's back. It's gossip. It's called gossip. And gossip is very, very easy to allow. I love Proverbs 26 and verse 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Love that. Wisdom from Proverbs. So we need to remember that the seat of judgment over other Christians belongs to God. It gets worse, though. We actually put ourselves in, a, in, in, in the seat of judgment over the law itself. Look what he says there. Verse 11. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. I thought, what in the world, James, are you talking about? And what he's getting after here is is that we have 
commands from Scripture of how we're supposed to, to behave. And particularly, he's already quoted, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? And he called that the royal law back in uh, chapter 2 and verse 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's already quoted the law, and that's a pretty significant law, being the second greatest commandment. And so he, he's quoted that law, and, and then he says, okay, here you are acting in, in, in direct contradiction to that with the way you speak to one another. So what you are determining is that, yeah, you know the law, but it's not worth obeying. You have demoted the law of God. You've demoted the command of God to the place where you get to say, well, I don't really want to do that. And so you sit not only in judgment over your brother, but you are sitting in judgment over the law because you've determined that it's not, it's not worth obeying. And so uh, that's a dangerous seat to be in to sit in judgment of the law. And I'd never thought of it in those terms until James pointed it out to me here. It's a scary thought to sit in judgment over God's law. But that's what we do when we, uh, when we speak against a brother, right? When we, when we speak evil of a brother, when we judge a brother in those ways, it's exactly what we're doing. We need to remember that judgment is God's. Judgment is God's. James says that when we sit in judgment over people and the law, we usurp God's role as the true lawgiver and the one who has authority over life. In contrast to him, who are we to judge? Who are we to judge our neighbor? This reminds me of, of uh, the book of Job. By the way, if you've not read Job, the first 37-ish chapters are a little tough. Chapter 1, you know, you can kind of get through. And then 2 through 37, man, you need a notebook. And you've you got you to pay attention to read that. But you get to 38, and, uh, and it's good times. And uh, it gets pretty strong. It wouldn't, wouldn't have been good to be, Job, or to be Job in that context. Right? So God addressing Job. You remember Job had this deal where challenges, extreme challenges were brought into his life. Right? And God allowed those very directly to test Job and whatnot. And he goes through these and he loses his, his whole family except for his wife and, uh, and loses all of his property, loses his health, loses everything. And he's got these friends who show up to give him counsel. And the friends say, Job, you must have done something wrong because God doesn't do this to innocent people. You probably heard that argument somewhere. You don't hear it from God. And so Job and, and, his, and his three friends, his four friends, argue with each other throughout the whole book and lay out this whole philosophy of, of God being a tit-for-tat kind of God and, and, uh, and he gives us what we deserve and whatnot. And, and finally, at the end, this is what God says to Job. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its, me its measurements? Surely you know. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Who do we think we are to sit in judgment? Judgment belongs to the Lord and we need to stay out of his seat. We need to let him do it. Moving on through our passage here, another way that we find ourselves trying to take God's seat is when we, uh, uh, we put ourselves on his throne. We put ourselves on his throne. Look at verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and, and uh, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
We sit on his throne, first of all, by our independence. By our independence from God. The biggest problem here is not so much the person's pride in thinking that he can accomplish this plan. The biggest problem is not that he thinks he can make a plan and then just go and do it. That's not the biggest issue. That's an issue, but it's not the biggest issue. See, the person in 13, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That person, he sees what needs to be done, right? Or at least he sees what he wants to do. He makes a plan and he goes and does it, right? That's the American dream, right? It's kind of the American dream. It almost sounds noble, right? This guy's going to pick himself up by his own bootstraps. He's, he's taking care of himself after all. No one has to look after him. This guy's a real go-getter. The problem here is he, he doesn't make any reference to God whatsoever when he's making his plans. He doesn't appear to ask God what he should do. He doesn't appear to submit his plans to God. We don't see him thank God for the ability to accomplish his business or to ask for God's help in accomplishing his business. Nor do we see him seeking to honor God with his business ventures. He makes a plan. He executes the plan. Period. The man is a practicing atheist. He's a practicing atheist. He may believe in God. He may not be atheistic uh, in his stated belief system, but he certainly is in practice. Lives his life irrespective of God. And James told us back in 1.10 that even if he is able to accomplish his business plans, nevertheless, he will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So we sit on God's throne through our independence. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What are we saying about God when we plan our lives without reference or without deference to God? We're saying that God doesn't actually have the right to insist on anything in my life. He doesn't have the right to be sovereign in my life. We can deal with it. We can handle what God throws at us. We don't need him. We can take care of ourselves. We have the authority to decide and to do and to execute and to make it happen. In essence, when we take control of our lives like the person in verse 13, we turn our back on God and we do what we want. We live as if God doesn't even exist. And James says all such boasting is evil. And so a question here, are you in charge of your life? Are you in charge of your life? Do you plan your way without reference to God or without deferring to God? Do you, do you live as a practical atheist? How much veto power do you give God over your decisions? I believe one way God shakes us out of our practical atheism in this area is through pain and suffering, which is particularly relevant in, uh, in the life of our church right now with so much suffering that is going on, so much pain that's going on. And C.S. Lewis said this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God wakes us out of our, our practical atheism a lot of times through pain, through suffering. 
There's no shortage of suffering in our congregation. And as, as we are being made painfully aware that we don't know what tomorrow holds, our life is a vapor. The fact that we only take our next breath because God, because God gives it to us. We need to make the attitude of verse 15 our own where he says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do such and such. That's what I want my attitude to be. Another very practical way, by the way, that we can become more conscious of our true position in the world, meaning under God, with him being sovereign, he actually does exist, and for us to live as if he does exist, is to start every day with God's word and the Bible. You don't have to read giant chunks, but get into his his word. Read a paragraph. Think about it and pray. You don't have to spend an hour and a half. You don't have to spend a half an hour. But spend some time just ordering your life under God himself. You might be tempted to usurp God's authority by your independence. You'll soon find out, though, that, uh, that your reign will be short-lived due to your ignorance, right? Due to your ignorance. He says there, verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. I've contemplated sovereignty and tried to figure out how in the world God could be sovereign over all those moving parts and accomplish his purposes and all that kind of stuff. I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. Even knowing what tomorrow brings, you know, how, I don't get it. We don't, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We are so limited in how foolish it is for us to place ourselves uh, on God's throne as if we could control things and we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You've got some plans, you've got some ideas, and then tomorrow happens, and the Lord's going to accomplish his purpose, and yours may or may not. We should make plans, by the way. We should make plans for tomorrow. Notice how the guy in the other one, he, he still does make a plan. He says, if the Lord wills, and if we live, right? then we'll, we'll do such and such. He does make a plan. Planning is a good thing. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 21.5. But we need to submit our plans. We need to subordinate our plans to God himself. He's the one who knows what's going on. So as for us, we don't, we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. More than that, our life is a vapor. Your lifespan is a limiting factor. What he says there in, in the second part of 14, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This guy in verse 13 made a year-long business plan. He planned a year-long trip, and he doesn't even know if he get gets to draw the next breath. He doesn't know if he's going to have tomorrow, and he made this plan for what he's going to do for a year without God. Folks, life is short. Even if you live to be 80 or 100, 120, even if you live to be 120 years old, what is that in comparison to human history? Very little. And what is it in comparison to eternity? I, how do you compare it to eternity? Our life is short. Our life is about as substantial and as, and as enduring as the mist that's going to come from your breath in the month of November. Go outside in the morning and breathe, and there it is, and it's gone. And that's about how substantial our life is. So let that knowledge humble you and remind you to submit all of your life and all of your plans to God who alone is able to save and to destroy. So rather than trying to put ourselves in the place of God, we need to put ourselves in submission to him. 
First of all, to his veto, to God's veto. Let's read 15 through 17. He says there, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So we want to submit ourselves to God's veto. The second person, you'll notice he does have plans, but he subordinated his plans to God. What God might want. God God gets to pull the plug on this. He gets to make whatever changes he wants. And I'm acknowledging that. We, We may know it because we know our Bibles or we went to Sunday school. But if, if we don't acknowledge it and we don't live actively as if it's true, we're practicing that it's not true. We want to submit ourselves to God's veto. This guy is humble in, in that he might be able to accomplish all that he wants. But he's nevertheless careful to acknowledge that he will only be able to do so if God allows it. If it's God's will. He seeks God's will. He's humble before the Lord. He asks the Lord uh, whether he should do this thing and he asks the Lord how to do this thing. We also are to submit ourselves to God's mercy. Second portion that he says there in that verse, he says, if the Lord wills, first of all, we will live. The guy in verse 13 made a year-long business plan, a trip. He was going to go on a trip and do business for a year. And this second guy says, well, if the Lord wills, I, I'll be able to draw breath again tomorrow. And, uh, and hopefully, if, you know, I'll be able to do this and this. Right? He submits himself to God's mercy, understanding that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Jesus commented on this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. All of life is dependent upon God himself, upon God making it happen. And so when we're making our plans, and we should plan, when we're making our plans, we need to submit them to God and ask if this is the Lord's will, we need to give him veto power, and we also need to very clearly understand in our own minds that the fact that I get to wake up tomorrow, if I get to wake up tomorrow, is by God's mercy. It's not just the natural working of the universe. God holds it together and makes it function. It's his mercy that we get to do that. So we want to be submitted to, uh, to his mercy. And I love the portion here where he, he kind of wraps it up with bringing it back around to God's wisdom. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This verse right here is kind of the conclusion or putting a point on that whole argument that I made, that he made starting in the end of chapter 3, about the two different kinds of, uh, kinds of wisdom, right? The two different kinds of wisdom. And uh, the one that, that obeys, the one that doesn't, the one that operates out of selfishness, the one that operates out of peace, right? The one that seeks uh, the Lord's will and the, the one that ignores what God might want. And he comes right down here to the end. It says, whoever knows the right thing to do, meaning whoever knows what God wants, whoever knows how we should walk under God's authority, how we should be in submission to him. The one who knows to do that and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. To him it's sin. Back in chapter 3, we were shown two types of wisdom, the world's and God's. Those who are really wise and understand what it means to know God will show that by their good conduct. 
On the other hand, the one who knows what God wants but continues to tear down others and to boast before God is in serious trouble. Tearing one another down with our words springs from a way of thinking that is from the world. And when, we, when we do that, we take God's seat as the judge over other believers and even the judge over God's word. And God is the only one in a position to judge people. He's the only one with the authority to sit in that seat. And the other unchristian way of thinking here tells us to live our lives without remembering God, without reference to God, without honoring Him, without submitting, his, submitting to His plans, without, without placing ourselves under Him. Godly wisdom tells us to submit all plans and hopes about tomorrow to the sovereign will of God. And so in conclusion here, I have just a, a few questions for us in light of those two ideas. In light of those two different seats of God that we often place ourselves in. First of all, do you find yourself sitting in judgment over other believers in ways that you shouldn't? Do you show partiality in how you treat others? Do you have a critical or a proud spirit that would elevate yourself over them? If so, the message here is humble yourself. Humble yourself before God and humble yourself before others. Be aware of that. Be aware that you are seated in God's seat. Secondly, we need to be very conscious of the fact that God is on the throne and we are not. We are his servants. When you make your plans, bring them before the Lord with an open hand and acknowledge that he has the right to veto your plans if and when he chooses. He has that right in all areas. And we need to live in conscious awareness of that. But he, he has the final say. There have been many times in my life when I have, I've known that. You know, I know, I know the Bible. I know that that's true. I know that God has veto. And yet I kind of press on and I sort of leave it as a kind of a subconscious. Yeah, you know, if, if God wants to change this, he'll change it. But I'm going to go ahead and do this until and, and unless he changes it. We need to be quick to acknowledge that we exist because of God's mercy. And the plans that we make, we need to submit to him and ask him whether he would have us make those plans. Thirdly, do you know what God expects of you, what his law says, what the Bible says, but you're unwilling to do it? You're unwilling to do it. James says that you are, in fact, judging the law. Sitting in judgment over the law and saying, well, that sounds like a good idea, but not for me. Not for me. You're saying God's instructions are not worth obeying. Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So don't sit in judgment over God's commands. Instead, submit to them. Submit to them. Fourthly, we so often disregard God's standards. We so often want to place ourselves in his seat, on his throne, in judgment over other people, or just in the driver's seat of my own life. We're born that way, right? We're born with that desire. We're going to do what we want to do, and woe to you if you get in my way. And who really cares if God tries to get in the way? That's the way we're born. And that kind of living puts enmity between us and our creator, our creator who actually has the authority to say what we should and shouldn't do, how we should and shouldn't live, to determine, to, to tell us what is the value and the length of our life, what is to be the direction of our life. 
So we put ourselves at enmity with our creator, and that's a very dangerous place to be. And so Jesus came, and he came to reconcile us, sinful, disobedient, rebellious people, reconcile us with God himself by his own death, that he took that enmity from God and he bore it himself so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have a right relationship with God. And that's that's the good news, and that is good news, because I don't naturally do what God's law says. And I have racked up a life of disobedience to God's law and to one degree or another. I became a Christian at 18 and, and you know, you couldn't, it would require books, you know, to write down my active obedience against God. And so I've been a Christian, low these, you know, however many, 24 years since then. And you could fill more books. And so my standing before him is not dependent upon the fact that I obey him perfectly. My standing before him is dependent upon the fact that he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for me. And when I place my trust only in him as my only hope, then I can have forgiveness. And I can have, I can have relationship with, with him. And I can be forgiven. I can be in God's presence. And so my prayer this morning is that everyone here would look to Jesus in that way to look to him, to trust him, to understand that he is the only hope you have for salvation. He is the only hope you have for forgiveness in Christ and that you will place your faith in him, that you will trust him, that you will turn from those books and books of sin that you've got in your life and follow him. Let's pray. Father, I have so often sat in your seat in one way or another, in my own life or in judgment over others or wanting to be sovereign. Lord, I confess that as sin. I confess that I do that when I'm prayerless. When I just start my day, do my day, and finish my day under my own steam and with my own ideas, not submitted to you, not acknowledging you, not seeking you in that, in that way. I pray that you would forgive me for that because it's sin. Lord, I believe that you're real and I believe that you are my creator. And I believe in Jesus who has taken my sin upon him that I can be reconciled to you. And so I submit right now and we submit our hearts to you and our lives to you and our plans to you. And some of us have plans that we know are not honoring to you. I pray that you would convict us and help us to give you veto power over those plans. Some of us have strong plans. We don't, we don't know. Uh, th- there's nothing dishonoring to you in our plans. But I pray, Lord, that, that you would uh, convict us and empower us to give you veto power in those, in those plans also. And, Lord, forgive me for when I sit in judgment over a brother or sister in ways I shouldn't. When I just think I'm better or when, when I talk about them and judge them to someone else. I pray that you would forgive me. Father, your word is, is real and it's true. And as Christians, we, we have your word, revelation from you about who you are and who we are and how we can know you. And, and you also say a lot of things in there about how we're supposed to live. And so I pray that you would help us to know your word, to love your word, to love you, and to walk in obedience empowered by your spirit, directed by you, 
but that we would walk in obedience and help us as a congregation to, uh, to do that. Lord, we seek you. So, Father, we uh, submit ourselves and we submit our church to you. And we pray for your blessing and for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a quote from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. To this end, we also always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you are dismissed. And we are going to eat across the way in just a few minutes.